As we begin this morning, I want you to think about the answer to these questions. What does the Christian life look like? What does it look like as they seek to live in obedience to Christ? How important is Christ to them? How should they think about sin? So do you have those answers in your mind? What what does the Christian life look like? What does their life look like in obedience to the risen Christ? How should they think about sin? Now, think about your own life. Answer the question, are you a Christian? Does your life look like the life of a Christian? What is your relationship to the risen Christ? How do you think and feel about sin? If you're like me, someone who not only claims to be a Christian, but wants to live like a Christian, wants to live in a way that well represents the fact that Christ is the title of my life, then those kinds of questions can be like a splash of cold water on your face. Because what we would confess theologically, biblically, may not always be how we actually live practically each and every day. But because if we are Christian, this is the reality of our life, then our life should be very different from those around us who do not claim the name of Christ. And this morning, as we continue looking through Paul's letter to the Colossians, he's coming to the point now where he is laying out clearly, if you belong to Christ, then it should be evident in how you live your life. Not just in abstract terms, but in concrete examples of the difference that should exist. This morning we're going to see this from verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3, but I want to begin reading in verse 1 where Paul reminds us again of who we are in Christ and therefore why our lives should be different. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. May God bless the reading of his word. Paul is clear that if you have faith in Christ, your life is fundamentally changed. If the death and resurrection of Christ is true, historical fact, then it changes everything for those who believe it. And it has implications for how you live each and every day. And this is what we want to see this morning. If we are new people in Christ, then we must live like new people in Christ. And that means getting rid of our old ways, getting rid of the old way of living apart from Christ. Our life should not be the same as it once was. Particularly if, if we have been older, 
When we got saved, when we came to Christ, then there should be a clear distinctiveness between the B.C. and the A.D. of our life. But what if it's not? What if that clear distinction is not there? What if we want it to be there, we desire it to be there, we long to grow in godliness, but we are unsure how to continue? We hear like the law, don't commit these sins, but our heart longs for them anyway. And, and, and we commit them, and we're not sure how to, how to break free from that pattern of living. Then take heart, because Paul is going to tell us how to break free. He's going to tell us how to live as God's people. He's going to tell us how, as new people in Christ, we can kill and put to death the old ways of living that characterize the world and our old life apart from Christ. So if we're a Christian, if we desire to be changed we desire to grow in godliness, then our lives will be marked by three things. Three practical steps toward becoming what we have already been declared to be in Christ. The first thing this morning is this. You should remember your new identity in Christ. You should remember your new identity in Christ. We want to begin at the end of this morning. Verse 9, Paul says, You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. For Paul, this becomes the key to calling the Colossians to live holy lives. This is the reason he gives for there needing to be an evident change in their behavior. And it's rooted in this talk of putting off and putting on. It's the language of change. Specifically, it's the language of changing clothes. Now, you know, when I, when I was growing up, the, the, the typical uh, pattern of doing things when it came to baptism was uh, you uh, came before the service and there were two changing rooms, one for the guys and one for the girls, and there was a deacon and the pastor, at least in the guys' one. Uh, I'm assuming they weren't in the I know they weren't in the other one. Uh, but they were in mine, and the, the pastor, of course, would put these massive hip waders on, uh, like like uh, to go out fly fishing, so that way he didn't have to change his suit. He just put the big boots on, got in the water, uh, and then he got out, took those off, and he was good to go. Uh, for the rest of us, there was these big white robes that you were to wear. Uh, they looked like you were joining the choir or something. Um, actually, some of you even know what a choir is. Uh, it's kind of like the singers on the music team, but they all wear the same robes that make them look like Jedi Knights. And there's lots of them. Uh, okay, so, so it looked like you're doing the choir, and then you would, you would be baptized, and then you would go out, and then you would uh, take that robe off and change your clothes, and then you would sit through the rest of the service. Well, what's interesting, I didn't realize, I didn't know this until uh, reading this passage. That's the, that's the opposite of the way the early church did it. When you got baptized in the early church, you just wore your street clothes. You wore whatever uh, your normal apparel was. You went down into the water. You, you confessed faith in Christ through your baptism. And then when you came out, you changed clothes, usually into something new and white. Now, I think the early Christians had it much better because this is the example that we see uh, of Paul telling us what happens when our life becomes rooted in him. When it becomes united to him, we take off our old selves and we put on new selves. We have been cleansed in Christ and we have new life in him. Now, what are these selves? Some people take that to be natures. They believe that Christ has two, that Christians have two natures, a new nature and an old nature together, and each moment of each day you have to decide which nature you're going to live in. Well, number one, I don't think we find that in this text. I think that pushes it too far. In fact, I really don't think you find that way of thinking. I know it's popular in some writing in some circles, but I don't think you find that teaching in the New Testament. 
In fact, the older translations get it better here. If you've got a King James, it will say that Christians have put off the old man and put on the new man. And that's that's exactly what the word is. It's, it's anthropos. It just means man. It's where we get words like anthropology, the study of, of man and mankind. That's just what the word means. And it's simplest, it means man. And I think what Paul is talking about here are two men. Two men. Two men who represent two ages. Two men who represent two ways of relating to God. Two ways of living. The two men, Adam and Christ. And I think we see that from uh, elsewhere when he talks in Galatians chapter 3. He says, for as many of you are baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. I think Paul is saying that when you come to faith in Jesus, you are putting off, you are taking off who you are in Adam, and you are putting on who you are in Christ. Everyone who is born, is born in Adam. He is the father of the human race. To be human is to be a child of Adam. But that also means that you are born under the condemnation of Adam and the curse for sin. Adam is our head, our representative before God, the father of the human race. Thus, our birthright as children of Adam is nothing less than slavery to sin and the wrath of God. But do you remember what Paul said back in chapter 1? He said, because we have looked to Christ in faith, trusted in him to be our savior, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. As Christians, Adam is no longer our head. Christ is. Now we are his people, the children of God, no longer the children of Adam. Instead of slavery to sin, we have sonship to a righteous God. Instead of condemnation, we have justification. Instead of death, we now have life. In Christ, we have freedom from and forgiveness for our sin. And we must remember this. We must remember this. Paul says you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. If you've taken off the old Adam and put on Christ, then Paul says that the behavior must change as well. The behavior that comes with being a son of Adam must be replaced with the behavior that comes with being a son of God in Christ. He doesn't just say, put a fresh coat of paint on it. He doesn't just say, you stink like the farm field, and you look like it too, but just just put a jacket on, put a clean jacket on top of it, and you'll be fine. That's not what he says. He says, "When when you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son, then the clothing, the behavior of the old kingdom is stripped off of you and the new behavior, the new clothing, the new righteousness of God's kingdom is to be put on you. Because Christ is now your head. He is now your king. Therefore, we live like he is our head. We live like he is our king. Thus, Paul can say, here, where is that? That is here in the new self, here in Christ. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What is he saying there? I think he is saying this. All that your life was before Christ now means nothing when you are part of the church. Because he will argue elsewhere in Ephesians that in Christ, that one new man, he is building a new humanity, an entire new race, not human, Christian. 
collectively called the church. And I think that what he is saying is this is God's new humanity. When you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You may have been a Jew far from God or close to God under the old covenant. But you may have been a Greek, a pagan, way far away from God, not even knowing his name. You could have been the worst of the pagans, a barbarian or a Scythian. You could have been a freedman or even a slave. It doesn't matter in Christ. Your past is past. It is your old life and it has been crucified with Christ. Now you are in him and there is only him, your life in him. Remembering this fact, this reality is the first step in our pursuit of holiness. The path of righteousness never loses sight of this change. It is like a road sign that is put up at the crossing of every temptation, every path that would, that would cause us to stray from God's direction. There is this signpost saying, no, you are now in Christ. And that encouraging word, that word of joy and life and freedom should be constantly spurring us on to godliness. This is why Robert Murray McShane said, for every one look at yourself, take ten at Christ. Because the tendency is for us just to look at ourselves, to just look at our life, to just look at our sin, to just look at what's going on around us, and, and, and we, we lose hope. And therefore we just kind of wander off into sin and say, well, what difference does it really make anyway? And Paul says that makes all the difference in the world if your life is in Christ So continually remember your new identity in him. Your life is not your own. You are not your old self anymore. You have freedom now from sin and slavery to sin because you are in Christ. More than that, though, we should also, secondly, reflect on the coming judgment. We should reflect on the coming judgment of Christ. In verse 5, Paul presents a list of sins that are indicative of the culture at large. And he says, it's on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Loved ones and friends, this is the result of sin. Nothing less than the wrath of God poured out on the world. But think about how society treats sin. First of all, we don't, we don't use the word sin anymore, do we? I mean, you've got to be in a church context, or uh, it's used as a, as a mocking byword. Uh, sometimes by politicians. But most of the things on this list, and the list that comes later in verse 8, they're just part of how we live. It's not like we're, we're seeing something there that's like, whoa, you know, um, you know that's, that's freaky. You know, we don't see anything like that around here. No, it, I mean, this is, this, is, this is culture around us every day, all the time. In fact, people believe this is just normal behavior. That's just the way people are. That's what we say. And on one level, frankly, that's true. On one level, that's true. We sin because we're sinners. Uh, as children of Adam, we are born with corrupted hearts that long for sin as we grow older and become foolishly wise in the world's ways. It is the height of sorrow to see the infant face that once smiled and cooed at your every word mature with age and become the face that ignores you and yells at you, and hurls venom at you when they don't get what they want. And yet that's who we are in Adam. Sinners rotten to the core, growing in sin with each passing 
day unless God does something different. Nevertheless, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way God first made us. That's not the way that he designed us as his image bearers. Furthermore, that doesn't make our sin excusable, justifiable, or inconsequential. There are, in fact, grave consequences to our sin and the sin of the world because our sin isn't just bad behavior according to some abstract standard. You know, people will make this this argument. Philosophers will say, well, you can go from one culture and certain behaviors is considered taboo and against the social mores. You go to another culture and and it's just fine. Therefore, there is no such thing as an absolute standard of morality. Well, there's a Greek term for that. Hogwash. Okay. It just means that one, one culture is more depraved than another. They have been deprived in some way the light of God's common grace that helps control sin and him it in and hinder it from flourishing as it does in other cultures. There is not an abstract standard. Every sin is a sin against God. It is personal toward him. It is open, defiant rebellion against the one true God who created all of us to bear his image. And though there will always be, almost always be, collateral damage in the form of hurt people, every sin is fundamentally against God and God alone. Think about Psalm 51. Who did David sin against? He sinned against his own family when he had an affair with Bathsheba. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Bathsheba's husband. Doubly so when he sent him out to be murdered at the front lines of battle. He sinned against the nation because he was the king. And yet what does he say in Psalm 51? Against you and you only, God, have I sinned. (laughs) What? Well, understand it's poetry. David is is not saying, well, you know, it doesn't matter. No, no, what he is saying is, at its core, my sin is against God and God alone. So John Piper asks the question, what is sin? His answer is this, the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not relied upon, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. All sin is an affront to God. This is why he has every right to judge it. He has every right to judge it. He is just in the execution of his wrath against sin because he is the offended party. The wrath of God is coming into the world, but what does humanity do? We continue to sin and rebel. God gives us life and breath and all that we have, and he makes that known to us simply by the creation around us, but we aren't satisfied with him, we don't love him, and we do not honor him as we should. We think it'll all be fine when all the while God is saying, my wrath is coming. Jesus said that when you see natural disasters, it is a call to repentance. So when the great earthquake happens like this morning, it is God saying, my wrath is coming. When we see the tsunami sweep away thousands of people in the course of a few minutes, God is saying, my wrath is coming. When we see volcanoes and earthquakes and and all kinds of these things, God is saying, repent for my wrath 
is coming across the whole world. God offers himself and his love and we say, no thank you. I can run my life better than you. I, I am wiser than you, God. How utterly foolish is our sin. And God will not contend with such foolishness forever. His mercy towards the unrepentant rebellion of humanity will not endure forever. One day, Christ himself will return and the wrath of God will be revealed against heaven, from heaven against sin. That, that's what the Bible says. And in fact, it gives us some harrowing pictures of this. In Revelation 6, we see a picture of what is to come when humanity finally realizes the foolishness of its sin. The Apostle John writes, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the Lamb of God. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? People who wield the most power in this world from them to the least, the people living in boxes under bridges and those cleaning the toilets in public restrooms, if they have not turned to the living God, one day they will know the folly of their way. Later in chapter 19, John gives us a picture of Christ himself. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on right horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Think about that image for a minute. Jesus came as a lamb the first time to be slaughtered for sinners. The second time, he is coming to slaughter sinners as a lion, triumphing over them. Do not mistake and read that as, as the blood of his crucifixion on his robe. No, no, that's done. There is no more blood coming from Christ. He died and then he raised back to life, glorious and perfect forever. That is a, a symbol of the blood of his enemies. So deep that as he wades through the carnage, his very robe is soaked in it. This is not a pretty picture, friends. This is a terrifying picture of the wrath to come. Recently, one Christian artist describes... The coming wrath and our foolishness and not seeing it like this. God's wrath is a perfection for which he should be adored. A passion for this message, yes, it needs to be restored. He has holy reflexes towards the evil he abhors. Cats who don't respect him will receive his lethal sword. The mass prefers the pleasures that sin easily affords. Our blasphemous affections are the reason we're at war. We should be in awe. His sweetness should keep us floored since radical infection is the reason we get bored. Repeatedly we snore. He's frequently ignored. We explore evil lust, leaving us greedy for more. The master's recollection of our evil he records. We have zero protection because he is keeping score. It's bad for every section. There's no passing his inspection because we're lacking the perfection that we need to be secure. 
Everlasting dissection, the unbeliever's reward. Disaster for rejection of the truth. Jesus is Lord. When we reflect on that picture of sin and its consequences, Paul said it should make us run and run hard from any sin. Sin should not entice us or enthrall us. It should scare the living daylights out of us. But more than that, if we are God's people, it should grieve us. Imagine if your best friend in the world was your dad. You were walking down the street one day and you heard people saying the most rude and untrue things about him. How would that make you feel? Imagine your father was the leader of a country who always ensured every citizen got more than he needed, more than she deserved, but the people were ingrates and called him mean and unloving and openly tried to dethrone him and end his time as leader. How would that make you feel? Friends, that's the, that's the situation in which we live now. With God as our Heavenly Father. When we reflect on the coming judgment of Christ as the people of Christ, we should long for holiness, both in ourselves and in the world. Now, what if you're not one of God's people here this morning? You, know, I, you need to understand that God takes sin seriously, but He also loves sinners. And He made provision so that this wrath need not come upon you. He takes sin so seriously that he sent his own son to take on flesh and to identify with sinners and to, 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 to suffer and die even on a cross, bearing his wrath against sin. For all who would look to Christ, they will find forgiveness in him. God will look on you and consider your sins condemned on Christ. More than that, he says that the righteousness that belongs to Christ will be considered yours. So there is nothing hindering you from a full and loving relationship with God. All that is required is that you leave behind your old way of life and you look to faith in him. That you say, I don't want to be a son of Adam. I want to be a child of God. And God will Grant that salvation to you. He will forgive your rebellion. He will adopt you as his own. He will give you his spirit, making you a new person from the inside out. Therefore, trust him today. Trust him this very moment with your life. If we are to be the holy people of God that we are called to be, we must remember our new identity in Christ. We must reflect on the coming judgment of Christ. And we must resist sin for the glory of Christ. This is our last point this morning. We must resist sin for the glory of Christ. Resist matches the alliteration of the points, but it's probably too mild of a word. Unless you remember what Hebrews 12.4 says. He says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's the kind of resistance I'm talking about. A resistance that is so ruthless, so hard-pressed, it's going to result in the shedding of blood. Because everything in this that we've looked at so far, all of these verses, has been an argument for this command, verse 5, the very beginning, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It, it, it's, it's not, you know, uh, you know, move it off to the side, sweep it under the rug. It is kill it. Make war on sin until you are standing victorious over its rotting corpse. Kill it so it lives no more in your heart. 
And Paul gives examples of the kind of sin that we should be making war on. What does he say? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He's got two lists here. This first one deals with sins that spring from misplaced desire. Sexual immorality is a kind of catch-all phrase that covers any sexual deviancy. So, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, masturbation, and anything else you can think of is included in this word. If it defies God's plan for human sexuality, then it is wrong. Full stop. No exceptions. Impurity is a broader word that covers any kind of moral corruption. Passion is sometimes translated lust and is grouped with sexual sins in at least two other places in the New Testament. The word desire is more neutral. It might be positive or negative. If a man desires the office of pastor, he desires a good thing. But here Paul adds that it is evil desire, cravings for things which we should not have that is condemned. He ends the list with covetousness, which some commentators believe is a summary of the whole. And notice what Paul says about it. Covetousness is idolatry. Now, we talked a lot about idols when we looked at the book of Jonah. Let's just make the point, though, today that idolatry isn't about isn't just about physical idols, things that we can see and hold and touch that we bow down to made of water stone. It's about what we worship. And not just what we say we worship, but what we truly worship. What do we love? What do we trust in? What do we make first in our life? That is what we worship. And if it's not God, it's an idol. And it needs to be removed from our life. Why do we worship idols in the first place? It's because we don't have what we think we need. It's because we don't have what we think we need to have. That's why we don't worship God. We worship something else. We think, God's not giving me what I need. That's what coveting is all about, and that's why we give in to these sins. We believe that there is some level of sexual gratification that we need that God says is not good for us, and in fact, we don't need. Those of you that were part of the Secret Church event um, on Friday night, you heard one of the most compelling arguments for sexual purity, and that was Jesus, who was fully human, human in every way, the perfect human, and yet had no sexual outlet. So many, so people say, well, well I, I've got to have this. God's given me this desire. I've got to find it some way. And Jesus stands and says, why? I didn't. And I'm human just like you, fully human. What God says is best is always best, whether we realize it or not. And anything else is sin. Then in verses 8 and 9, we see another uh, example of sins. He says, you must put all of them away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. The commonality here seems to be sins of speech. The first three, anger and wrath and malice, all convey an attitude of anger and ill will that leads to things like slander, obscene talk, and lying. Slander is words that defame a person. Not surprisingly, obscene talk involves coarse language. Lying. Why is lying so bad? Well, I'll tell you what I tell my kids. God says he is true. Everything that he says is true. That he never gives anything that is false. And yet Satan is called the father of lies. So when you lie, you're declaring your father is Satan. When you tell the truth... You're saying, my father is God. Or at least you're acting like your father is Satan, your father is God. 
Why is language so important? Why are these things sinful? Because they don't build up, they only tear down. When you read Paul's letters especially, you see the criteria for Christian language is that it should always edify and glorify God. Paul says in these two, in these things, these very sins, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. See, the Colossians, this used to be their life. They used to live with these sins as a regular part of their life. And even today, when we look around the culture, these things are part and partial, aren't they? I mean, American culture cannot be defined by these things, but these things are certainly endemic of it. And Paul, what does Paul say, though? He says, if you're a Christian, though, you have no business in these things. No business whatsoever, because those things belong to your old life in Adam, and now you have new life in Christ. So that means it's never cute or a sign of your maturity to use bathroom language or tell crude jokes on the down low when there aren't a lot of people around. It's not your freedom in Christ. It's your acting like your old life apart from Christ that produces those things. It's never okay to assassinate someone's character with truth or fiction because they did or said something that you didn't like. It's never acceptable to say you have needs or make excuses for sinful sexual activity. If you are a disciple of Christ, those things should have no part in your life. And loved ones, this is just the beginning. I mean, there's other sins that are identified in the Bible. There's other lists of vices that we could look to. The sad reality is this is the kind of filthy seawater of culture in which we swim. And when we aren't careful, we get some in our mouth or we don't wash it off properly and we begin to stink like the sin around us. The question is, how can we tell? How can we tell when we've been compromised? Well, one thing is reading lists like this, right? There was a fellow by the name of John Phillips. He told the story of a prize fighter who was a committed atheist, and he came out of that uh, through the evangelism of one fellow, but he didn't stop boxing. He didn't stop prize fighting. And one time uh, there was a Sunday morning, and he was talking with some people in the lobby, and he said, i got a big fight coming up uh, this weekend, and I really need to win. And a senior saint, a godly old man in the faith, heard him, and he said, really? He said, you, you, you feel like you need to win? He goes, yeah, I, I need to have this win. And he says, well, have you prayed about it? And the boxer said, uh, what? And the man said, well, you know, you, you come to church, you're involved, you read the Bible, it's evident joy, you know, don't you know? He's been praying about everything. And he said, oh, I didn't think about it. He goes, kneel down and let's pray. And here's what the old man prayed. Father in heaven, I come before you in the precious name of your son. I thank you for your love for putting me in your family, for saving my dear brother here. You know all about his fight coming up next week. He says he needs to win that fight. So, Father, help him to beat that other fellow to a pulp. May he batter him all over the ring. May he bash in his face, knock out his teeth, and smash up his nose. May he knock him down and then knock him out stone cold. In the name of your son, our Savior, amen. <laughs> the boxer was so upset. He said, you can't pray like that. And the man, without blinking an eye, said, and you can't live like that. Isn't that how we are, though? We, have, we, we draw these lines and we think, well, this is fine, this is Christian. And, and, and what this senior saint was so clear and saying is, no, it doesn't work like that. Uh, evaluate, is this something? You know, we don't descend into the what would Jesus do thing, but the question is, is he glorified and honor in our behavior? Can someone look at that behavior and what we're doing at that moment and say, you know, uh, I see the glory of Christ there. If the answer is no, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. Maybe it belongs to an old way of living, an old way of thinking, that we should have nothing to do with this because in Christ it has been stripped off of us and it needs to be put away. 
So what are we to do? What are we to do? Practically speaking, when you go home this afternoon, when you get up tomorrow morning and the pressure is on, you've got work to do, you've got kids to raise, you've got a spouse to love, you've got yard work that's piling up, how are you going to resist the temptation to sin and live like a son of Adam instead of a son of God? Seven things. Here we go. Number one, we read and believe the promises of God in the scriptures. You have to be in the Bible, whether it is physical book, whether it is audio, whatever it is. If the words of God are not abiding in you, you will not be abiding in him and you will sin. You've got to be a person of the book. Jesus was and so should you. Secondly, we remember and believe that we have a righteous standing in Christ. You do not pursue holiness to be saved. You are already saved if you've trusted in Christ. Therefore, you pursue holiness. Don't ever confuse the two. Remember, you have a righteous standing in Christ before God. Thirdly, remember and believe that sin is no longer our master. Sin used to be on the throne in our life. And when we trusted in Christ, uh, our life died at the cross. That means we died to sin. Sin has been dethroned, but has not been defanged. So we are on guard against it. We make war against it, but we remember it is no longer our master. We do not have to sin like lost people. Fourth, we remember and believe that God has given us his spirit to give us a new life and enable us to fight against the flesh. We remember and believe that God has given us his spirit to give us new life and enable our fight against the flesh. He is the one that we follow in the battle against our sin. Paul says elsewhere that if we walk according to the spirit, we will not satisfy the lust of the flesh. We will not sin. Fifth, we remember and believe that our life is hidden with God in Christ and not the things of this world. Sometimes we just need to remember that. We just need to placard that. Because even when it comes to how we spend money, we can so easily justify things that we frankly don't need. And we need to remember, my treasure is not in this world. My my life is not bound up in this. My life is hidden with God in Christ. The same thing when it comes to to, to politics and so many other things. I'm not saying just disengage. But what I am saying is remember, your life is not bound up in this world. That's not who we are anymore. Six. We contemplate the utter sinfulness of sin, the foolish repugnancy of rebellion against God. Finally, we go again and again to the Bible, gazing at the glory of Christ until it burns on our soul. Remember when you were little and you looked at the sun too long and you had that spot that just would not go away? You thought you were going to be blind for life? And you said, just close your eyes for a few minutes, it'll go away. Well, We don't want that spot to go away when we gaze at the glory of Christ. We want it indelibly marked on our soul because the more we see the glory of Christ, the more we will treasure him and love him. And that means loving and treasuring sin less. If, if if, If our sin is rooted in idolatry, then what that just means is not that we keep rules. It means we find something better to worship. Instead of worshiping idols, we worship the risen Christ. That's how you defeat sin ultimately. Yeah, you may need the rules as a temporary measure. You may, you may need the no internet rule, the no alone in the office rule, or whatever it is. But eventually, that's just a, that's just a band-aid. The gaping wound is only going to heal when we love and trust and treasure Christ like he was meant to be. 
Paul says when we do this, when we grow in godliness, our very lives, verse 10, are being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In Romans 8, he explains that what that means is we are being transformed to reflect the glory of Christ. I heard someone give his testimony one time, and he said that when he was younger, he said um, he had friends that he used to play with, and one day his dad knelt down beside him and he said, you know that family that lives down the road? He said, yep. He said, you know, you, you, you play with one of the sons? He said, yep. He said, son, he says, you're, you're allowed to be nice to them. You're allowed to play with them sometimes, but I don't want you to be best friends with them. And the kid said, well, well why? And he said, they're not Christians. And it's evident in how they live their life that they're not Christians. He says, I want you to pray for them. I want you to tell them about Jesus when you get a chance. But who you hang out with the most is going to be who you look like the most. If you hang out with Jesus, if you behold his glory from the word, guess what? You're going to start looking like him. Paul says, if we behold the glory of Christ, then just like Moses on the mountain, soon we will begin to reflect the glory of Christ. That's where transformation comes from. It's not just by keeping rules. It's by opening ourselves up and exposing ourselves to God's transforming work by the word and his spirit. John Owen says this, and we're done. Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. Yes, you will. Through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. Father, that is our great desire to see our lives not bound up in sin and the things of this world that you have so clearly said are not just wrong because for some arbitrary reason you have declared them to be, but because, God, you are good and you are wise and you love your people, you have said, this is not good for us. Therefore, Father, we do not want to pursue it. Help us to find our hearts satisfied in you. Help us to have the worship of our life bound up towards you through the revelation of yourself and your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to treasure him that we may not treasure our sin. God, if we are Christians, if we have lives in Christ, then may our lives reflect that. Not for our own glory. Not that people would look at us and call us saints, but that they might look at you and say, what a great and glorious God. Father, if there are people here today and they are not Christians, if they do not have life in Christ, then I pray, Father, that you will weigh heavily on their minds and their hearts right now. Remind them of the atoning work of Christ as we have looked at and sung about today. Remind them of the, the horrific nature of sin as rebellion against you and the judgment that is one day coming. And Father, help them to see the beauty of Christ as the Savior for sinners. God, remind them of the call that you say to everyone, come, those who are poor and needy, sick and sore because of sin, that you will give them healing and rest. You will forgive them and give them life. And even as we have heard this morning, you will transform them into a holy people in which you delight. Father, this is our prayer. 
this morning. We ask it in the name and for the sake of your son, Christ Jesus. Amen.